I don't know how you all felt, but I thoroughly enjoyed listening to the, the last two evening messages, uh, Brother David Arthur and Brother David Santiago. Did a wonderful job opening up God's Word, and I appreciated that. We got to listen. Um, driving in the car, we got to listen. And that's a blessing of a modern technology, being able to basically be anywhere. And if you have a signal on your phone, you can get onto the website and, and listen to the message. So we were thankful for that. Tonight, we're going to be looking at a passage, actually really just two verses, from Matthew chapter 5. So I'd invite you to turn with me at this time to Matthew chapter 5. Over the next several weeks, I'd like to spend some time looking at Christ's Sermon on the Mount, specifically the Beatitudes. In these short series of verses, there is a wealth of knowledge that hopefully will be able to, at the very least, scratch the surface of. There's so much in here that even if we spent a lifetime, I don't think we'd uncover all that there is for us. And I'm sure we've all heard sermons on the Beatitudes before, and while we'll get into each of these verses over the next several weeks, what I'd like to do with our time tonight is get to know the preacher. And so I've titled my message this evening, Getting to Know the Preacher getting to know the preacher. Regardless of who is preaching, I feel you can learn more and enjoy the sermon more if you know the preacher personally. Therefore, in order for us to gain a firm grasp on this portion of Christ's Sermon on the Mount, we need to gain a better understanding of Christ the preacher. All of us have probably sat under a preacher at some point who we feel we could listen to the rest of our lives. There is a preacher maybe that is coming to your mind and you're thinking, I could listen to him every day, never get tired, never get bored. He was just the one, the one that I could always sit under. And probably you're not thinking my name, which is fine. But when Ruthie and I were living in Florida, the Lord brought us to a small country church called Graceway Baptist Church. And we weren't there all that long, but in the short time that we were there, we were blessed to sit under some really great preaching. The pastor of that church had no college education. I'm positive, 90% sure that he didn't finish high school, but he could preach your socks off. When we went down to Florida after being gone for a year, we visited the church and the pastor, Pastor Mullins, we, as soon as we walked in, I, we didn't tell him we were coming, we just walked in one day and he asked if I would preach. And that was the only time I was disappointed to preach. Because I was so much looking forward to being able to hear him preach. One of the main reasons why I loved hearing him preach was because in the short time that we were there at Graceway Baptist Church and in the short time I got to know him, I feel like I got to know him pretty well. We made visits together, we went soul winning together, and I got to see firsthand this man's heart for the ministry. He was already a good preacher, but his preaching really came to life for me the more I got to see him from outside of behind being, being behind the pulpit. And it was 
almost eye-opening to me to see his heart come alive and to see his preaching really hit home for me in a different way. When we look at the teaching and the preaching of Christ, it is clearly unmatched by any other person that has ever lived and will ever live. And as great as it is on its own, it really comes alive when you get to know the heart of Christ. The words themselves are incredibly powerful. There's so much depth to uh, what we're going to be looking at here in the Beatitudes. But the more you get to know Christ personally, his words really start hitting home on a different level. They take on a newer and a deeper meaning. It's not that the meaning of the words begins to change. It's just that he reveals more to you than what you previously saw. That's why I said, even if we spent a lifetime just preaching only on the Beatitudes for the rest of our lives, we wouldn't even begin to scratch the surface of what's here because there's so much that God reveals as you really dive in and as you're diligently searching for him. God is a rewarder, Hebrews tells us, of them that diligently seek him. And one way he rewards is by opening our minds and opening our eyes to see him on a much clearer way. The disciples would certainly get to experience this for they spent most of the time with Jesus talked and they, they got to talk to him more personally. They were able to see Jesus interact in different life situations, in different instances and see him respond in certain, in certain occasions. And on this occasion here in Matthew chapter five, Jesus had a very important lesson that he was going to be teaching. Many have, have made the mistake of insisting that the Beatitudes and the entire Sermon on the Mount answer the question of how a person is to be saved. If there is anyone who is qualified to answer that question, it is Jesus. <clears throat> but that is not what he's doing here in this Sermon on the Mount, which stretches from Matthew 5 to Matthew chapter 7. There are plenty of other passages where Jesus very clearly teaches that, that salvation comes only through believing on him, but here he is answering the question of who is saved or what are the signs of the grace of God in an individual's life. If Christ is the expert, and he is, on how a person is saved, then he is also the expert on what a saved person looks like and how they should act. After all, Jesus is the good shepherd. Believers are his sheep. He, who other than the shepherd knows the sheep? We read in, in 2 Timothy 2.19. The Bible says in 2 Timothy 2.19, Nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal. The Lord knoweth them that are his. Jesus knows all them that believe on him. And then Jesus declared in John 6.37, he says, Him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. Not only does Jesus know all of those who believe on him, but he keeps us eternally saved. You never have to wonder whether or not you've lost your salvation because you were saved when you were five years old, but you really made a mess of your life when you were 35 years old, when you were 55 years old. You don't have to worry about that because God is, is not working on a level like that where he revokes his salvation or he is a, some sort of a parole officer where he's watching over us. And if we make a mistake sometime later in life, he says, you know what? You're going back to being condemned. Once he saves us, he eternally saves us, and he keeps us that way. And I praise the Lord for that. Praise the Lord for his eternal salvation. The moment God saves us, even if you're four years old, like I was, the moment he saves us, he keeps us eternally secure. 
He will never cast us out, the Bible says. He will never change his mind. He will promise to save us, and he saves us the moment we trust in him. And his promise of salvation does not fade over time, will not be forgotten, and it never expires. We are kept eternally secure only by the power of God through the working of the Holy Spirit because we are forever children of God and we're destined to spend eternity in the glories of heaven the very moment that we trust in Jesus as our Savior. If we're trusting in God's unfailing word for our salvation, we would be wise to pay extremely close attention to the Son of God as he delivers this message because this is what he says what the believer should look like. As we take a closer look at Christ the preacher, the one preaching this Sermon on the Mount, I want you to notice first the occasion of the sermon. And the occasion of the sermon. <clears throat> notice what we see in verse number one. Matthew chapter five and verse number one. And seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain, and when he was set, his disciples came unto him. We're told that Jesus didn't start preaching this message until he saw the multitudes. In other words, he waited until the crowd grew as large as possible. The previous chapter records the start of Christ's public ministry. He was ministering, the Bible says in Matthew chapter 4, throughout the region of Galilee, uh, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, healing all manner of sickness and disease among the people. And Matthew 4.25, if you want to look at what the Bible says, the very last verse of chapter 4, it tells us that it was a large group of people that were following him. It says, and there followed him great multitudes of people from Galilee and from Decapolis, which is the region that is almost north, uh, northeast of, uh, of Galilee, <clears throat> on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, and from Jerusalem and from Judea and from beyond Jordan. So literally there's people from all over that are following him. This massive multitude of people have come to hear him preach. And he's been preaching. And Matthew 4, 23, 24 talk about it. He's been preaching in the synagogues. He's been healing all manner of sickness and disease among the people. They'd come from all over, the Bible says, to see his miracles, to hear his teaching. And Jesus would make sure that everyone would have the perfect seat. Christ's message needed to be heard by all. So he waited for everyone to gather around, to come in close, to prepare themselves for everything that he was about to say. And if you have a red letter Bible, what you'll notice is that almost the entirety of Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is all in red letters because there is nothing but Jesus speaking here. He, and it starts right here in Matthew really at the end of chapter 4 and then the beginning of chapter 5 he sits down everyone comes together then he opens his mouth and he teaches them and he doesn't stop until the end of chapter 7 no interruptions no little snippets of information it's just straight preaching from beginning to end there was great compassion in Christ as he had on this crowd because as he looked out among all the faces that were there gathered around him he saw all the ignorance he saw all the sorrow, he saw all the sadness, he saw all the sin. There was tremendous need. And this wasn't time to rush through a quick message so that people can get home and get to lunch or get to dinner or whatever they ought to do the rest of the day. This was time for Jesus to sit down and to have all these needy people come close to him so that they could hear very clearly what he was about to say as he is the savior of the world, opening his mouth and speaking to sinners who are in need of him. 
Now, I think this says a lot about Christ as we see this occasion here of him preaching. He noticed the multitude of people. He noticed all of their needs. This is a consistent theme regarding Christ throughout his public ministry. He was never too busy for anyone. He was never too busy for anyone. Now, I mentioned as part of our communion service that Jesus was busy, right? At the end of John... The gospel writer says that if everything Jesus did, and this is summarizing, this is paraphrasing, he said if everything Jesus did were recorded in books, he said the world itself would not have enough room in all the books to record everything Jesus did. So he was busy. And his public ministry was no longer than about three and a half years. So he was incredibly busy. And yet, he was never too busy. Never too busy to, to talk to someone to heal someone that was sick. He was never too busy for anyone. Even at times when most people would have only focused on themselves and looked at the situation and said, okay, if anyone has an excuse, it's them right now. Christ was always thinking of others. In John chapter 8, Jesus was teaching in the temple and he made this incredible declaration at the end of John chapter 8. Whereas he's deliberating with the Jewish authorities and the religious leaders of the day. And he makes this declaration where he says, before Abraham was, I am. Now, Abraham was the father of the Jewish nation. There was God and just below that was Abraham. And Jesus says, guess what? You think Abraham's up there? Put me a notch above him. Before Abraham was, I am, he says. Now the Bible goes on to tell us that the religious leaders picked up stones to throw at him, to cast him, to cast at him, to put him to death. And John chapter 8 ends with Jesus, it says, passing through the midst of those individuals unseen. How he did it, it was a miracle. But he's somehow able to pass through the midst of them completely unseen and he's leaving the temple where he was preaching, where he made this incredible declaration where people were ready to kill him. And for any of us in that same scenario, we're thinking, people are ready to put us to death. Let's get out of here. We're probably shouting out to the disciples, Peter, ready the horses, get the chariots ready. I want those horses' legs moving as soon as we jump on top of them because there are people who are on our tail coming after us, ready to put us to death. Let's move and groove. Let's get out of here. Right? Someone's threatening your life. That is the common logical idea and thought that we're going to have. But the Bible tells us in John chapter 9, that as they were leaving the temple, he stopped to talk to a blind beggar. Under these circumstances, where his life was being threatened, he's fleeing those who literally want, him, want to put him to death. As they're leaving the temple, right there outside the temple is this blind beggar who set up shop in one of the most busiest intersections there can be. Smart on his part because he's going to get the most foot traffic coming by him. But Jesus has just been threatened in the temple. He's literally just leaving the temple where people had stones ready to put him to death. And he stops and he's talking. He's deliberating with, it, deliberating with his disciples as to why this man is born blind. Who cares, right? If that's me, I don't care. Whatever it is, if I'm Jesus, I snap my fingers and say, you're healed, let's go. Right? I'm not going to wait around to, to have a conversation. What we read about him doing in, in the rest of John chapter 9, he stops 
And he says, well, why do you think he's blind? And they, they, the disciples say, well, you know, is it because his parents sinned? And Jesus says, the man, is born, man was born blind so that the works of God may be manifest. And he goes on and he will spit in the dirt and make clay and anoint the man's eyes. All of this takes time. With people that are wanting to kill you, breathing down your neck, he's taking the time. Now, we know the rest of the story. He anoints the man's eyes with the mud, tells him to go wash in the pool of Siloam. He goes, he washes, he comes, he's seeing. For the first time in his life, he's able to see. All because Jesus stopped and made time for someone that was in need. Who does this? If your life is on the line and you're trying to escape those who want you dead, you're not stopping to help someone out on your way out of the temple where there's people who are threatening your life. In John chapter 4, Jesus and his disciples are traveling from Judea in the south to Galilee in the north. The only problem with this is that the most direct route would take them through the land of Samaria, which was a, a big no-no if you were a Jew. The Jews would add days to their journey by going around Samaria only to avoid being in contact with the Samaritans because they viewed them as beneath them. This was the, the first signs of prejudice, racism that we see. They couldn't stand each other. And they, it was common knowledge. And the Bible tells us in John chapter 4 that even though the disciples didn't want to be going through the region of Samaria, Jesus said, we must needs go through Samaria. And so as they're going through Samaria, wouldn't you know it, they get tired on their journey and need to stop for some water and some provisions. And so they're in the middle of Samaria, right, out right outside the town of Sychar, and Jesus is by a well, and he tells the disciples, you guys go into the town of Sychar, get some food for our journey. Now, I'm sure they were thrilled about having to do this, right? They already can't stand the Samaritans. Samaritans can't stand the Jews. The Jews didn't want to be there. The disciples were probably begging and pleading, Jesus, let's just go the long way around. No one goes to Samaria. You're, you're new to this. You don't understand the way things work around here. We don't see eye to eye with these people. They're from the different side of the tracks. Do you see the way they look? Do you see the way they dress? We don't talk to them. He says, we're going through Samaria, guys. <sighs> All right. But I'm not lifting up my head the entire way. Uh, we're, getting, we're going through and we're going through as quickly as we can. And he stops at halfway through in the middle of Samaria. And he says, all right, guys, now go into the town of Samaria and get some food. What do you think the disciples were thinking at this point? Do you think they were thrilled about having to do this? They don't want to be there in the first place. But they go. Begrudgingly, they go into the town of Samaria. They stop for water. And Jesus stays by the well. And he has this conversation with this woman who comes. And the woman even knows the cultural differences. She stops him and she says, listen, I don't know if you're aware of this, but I can see that you're Jewish and I'm a Samaritan. We shouldn't be interacting this way. We shouldn't be talking. This isn't done. And he proceeds to really just pick apart her life. It's as if she was airing her dirty laundry without even having to air it because he knows everything and he points out every little nuance in her life, every flaw that she has, and she is just broken down to her core to the point where this woman actually gets saved. And praise the Lord for that. And in the meantime, the disciples return from the town of Sychar and they have food. 
Now, they're, they're probably, you know, they got the food, they come, Jesus, okay, let's eat. You have no idea what we just went through. We had to talk to Samaritans. We had to buy food from these people. Can we just eat and drink and get on our way? And Jesus says, guys, you, you missed it. You missed it. You came back with food. You missed it. And they're thinking, what in the world is going on? He sent us out to the town to get food. We came, we got food. What did we miss? He tells him, he says, the fields are white for the harvest. You say, you know, four months until the harvest come. He says, I'm telling you right now. Right now is the time for the harvest. And you missed it. What he was telling them is that back in the town of Sychar, where all they could focus on was buying food for their journey, was a whole town full of people who were on the cusp of believing in Jesus and seeing the Savior, but they didn't know where he was. They were like fruit that was ripe for the picking. You ever picked an apple that is really ripe? How hard do you have to pull that off the tree? Come on, someone be with me here. How hard do you have to pull it off the tree? You push your hand on it, it almost falls into your hand, right, without a struggle. That's what these Samaritans were in the town of Sychar. They were fruit that were just ripe for the picking. And if those disciples were focused on eternal salvation and the eternal salvation of the people that were there, instead of getting food from people that they don't want to talk to and then getting on their way, they could have been involved in such an incredible miracle where a whole town full of people are saved. And they return to Jesus and they have done just enough. Right? They did what they were asked to do. And Jesus says, you missed it. You missed it. Now, fortunately, the woman that was saved crossed paths with the disciples as they're coming back, and she goes into the towns, and she starts telling everyone that she's just met the Savior, and she can show them where he is, and the people come, and as a result, many get saved, and they beg and plead for him to stay extra long in Samaria, which is just the delight of the disciples, right? He stays an extra several more days. They didn't want to be there for five minutes. And Jesus says, guess what, guys? We're camping out. Get comfortable. Because the need is right here. I don't care what these people look like. I don't care about these cultural divisions that we've been dealing with for who knows how long. He saw one thing. He saw sinners in need of a savior. And it didn't matter what they looked like. It didn't matter what their background was. It didn't matter how much money they had. It didn't matter what society told us about who these people are. He had compassion on people because of who they were eternally, and that was lost. And praise the Lord. Praise the Lord for what happened. Praise the Lord for how the testimony of the woman, who probably was not the most reliable, based on her own track record, God used that to the point where the people in Sychar would listen to her testimony and come to the Savior through her. Many were saved that day because the woman told the people about Christ and showed them where they could find him. And as a result, Jesus tarried in Samaria several more days. Imagine that. If it were up to the disciples, they would have never traveled through Samaria. They would have never been there. If the disciples were the navigators, they would have gone all the way around. We wouldn't be reading about the incredible salvation account that happens in John chapter 4. But Jesus cared about people, and he always had time for them. We allow the busyness of life 
to get in the way of what is truly important. We allow silly issues to cloud our vision and not allow us to see opportunities that God puts in our way every day. We get so narrow-minded and have such tunnel vision at times where we end up passing right by needy people all around us. Let's take a lesson from Christ who was never too busy to stop and help someone that was in need. Be on the lookout for opportunities for you as a believer to be a witness for Christ, to share the gospel, to be a blessing to someone that is in need. God often puts people in our lives that need our help and he's just waiting for us to notice these people. The disciples bought food from the Samaritans who would end up believing on Christ, not because of them, but because of the testimony of the woman. They had the opportunity, the disciples did, to be a part of this incredible occasion where thousands are saved, but they were too focused on getting food and getting out as quickly as possible that they missed out. We can get so carried away with our lives that we think witnessing needs to be done when it's convenient to us. But the truth is that witnessing should be done at all times. That is the lesson that Jesus is showing us here, that, ha that him having compassion towards people was not limited to just a few occasions, but all the time. Jesus didn't have to pencil into his calendar that he is going to be soul winning from 9 a.m. to 10 a.m. on Saturday, and that's going to check off his soul winning for the week. Imagine that. Imagine if Jesus went soul winning only one hour a week. Now, I'll be honest, there are times where I feel good that I've done soul winning for an hour a week. If Jesus went soul winning only an hour a week, we wouldn't be sitting here today. He made time for people. His life was ministry which meant that his eyes were always open to see people for who they truly were, sinners in need of a savior. I want you to listen to a quote from Charles Spurgeon. He said, if men become negligent of hearing and the audience of a preacher dwindles down to a handful, it will be a great distress to him if he has to remember that when many were eager to hear, he was not diligent to preach to them. He who will not reap when the fields are ripe for the harvest will only have himself to blame if in other seasons he is unable to fill his arms with sheaves. Opportunities should be promptly used whenever the Lord puts them in your way. It is good fishing where there are plenty of fish, and when the birds flock around the fowler, it is time for him to spread his nets. The bottom line is that Jesus loved people, and so should we. There is so much need all around us you don't have to look far to find it you just need to open your eyes and see it now let me challenge each of you tonight i'm challenging myself to find someone this week to be a blessing to it can be more than one person but at the very least just one person find someone this week one person at the very least to be a blessing to and preferably someone you're not related to all right so you can't use your spouse find someone to be a blessing to this week it doesn't have to be a perfect stranger it could be someone that you already know someone you may even go to church with but figure out something you can do that would be a blessing to them and if you think that's asking too much at the very least 
find someone that you can be praying for this week. And maybe you think, well, I already prayed for a whole list of people. That's great. But go up to someone personally, talk to them, get to know them, and find something specific that you can be praying for them for over the course of this week. And pray for them every single day. All that we should be doing is making time for others. Now, I'm going to do this. And I'm going to report back next week. I'm not necessarily going to tell you who I'm praying for or who I'm trying to help. But can you all take me up on this challenge? Even if you're just going to be praying for someone, but talk to them. And let them know that you're praying for them. And if you have to, maybe it's good encouragement. Send them a text every once in a while throughout the course of the day. Let them know. Prayed for you today. Pray that God would give you strength. Pray that God would give you clarity. Whatever the issue is that you're praying for, let these individuals know that you're praying for them. But just pray for them. Or if it's something that you're going to do to help them, be a blessing to them. You can keep it completely anonymous too. Either way, figure out something you can do to be a blessing to someone this week. Notice second. So we've seen the occasion. First, the occasion of the sermon. But notice second. The place of the sermon. Look at verse number one again. The place of the sermon. And seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain. The mountain he went up into is not significant. Uh, What is significant is that Jesus ascended to an elevated position for a purpose. Jesus saw the multitudes, the Bible says. And knowing that everyone needed to hear his message, he positioned himself in a place where everyone could easily hear what he had to say. And this was a very common practice in the day, especially as large crowds would gather. It's something we even see happening in the Old Testament. In Nehemiah chapter 8, one of my most favorite passages, Nehemiah chapter 8, Ezra the priest is reading the Old Testament scriptures to the children of Israel that have all gathered together there in Jerusalem. And I want you to listen to what we're told in verses 3 and 4 in Nehemiah chapter 8. It says of Ezra, it says, He read therein before the street, that was before the water gate, and notice this, you think I'm long-winded, from morning until midday. From morning until midday, okay? And they're standing. Before the men and the women and those that could understand and the ears of all the people were attentive unto the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood upon a pulpit of wood, which they had made for the purpose. You see, there was a a whole congregation of people that had all come. They gathered together to hear God's word. And Ezra is here preaching and reading the word of God. And he is standing from an elevated position, a literal platform, a pulpit that they had built for this purpose. So that all would be able to hear It was common. In fact, it was also pretty common for Jesus to have his audience sit while he spoke to them. The elevated position was also purposeful because the message that Jesus preached needed to be loudly proclaimed and widely heard. A few chapters later in Matthew chapter 10 and verse 27, Jesus would declare, he said, What I tell you in darkness, that speak ye in light. And what you hear in the ear that preach ye upon the housetops. There are some messages that cannot be hidden, that cannot be silenced, but need to be proclaimed from an elevated position where the most people can hear it. Now, historically, mountains have been associated with the people of God. When you think back to when God first gave to the law, uh, his law to Moses, do you remember what mountain that was upon? Sinai. Mount Sinai. 
that place carried great significance as God not only gave the law to Moses on the stone tablets, but spoke to Moses there regularly and even showed himself to Moses. Calvary. Calvary, the place of Christ's crucifixion, was an elevated, elevated position of huge significance. The very place where Christ bore upon himself the sin of the entire world and suffered the full wrath of God's sin, uh, God's wrath for sin, that took place on an elevated hill for all to see. After Christ's resurrection, the Bible tells us that he ascended to heaven from what mount? Anyone tell me? Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives. The very same place the Bible says that he is one day going to return and set foot on. It is fitting that Christ would begin his public ministry here in Matthew chapter 5, preaching from a mountain. It was upon Mount Sinai that God first gave the law to Moses, and it was upon a mountain that Jesus here in Matthew chapter 5 would expound on that law. Thankfully, for the sake of the multitude that gathered that day, it was not a mountain like it was there in Mount Sinai that smoked and burned with fire from which the children of Israel had to fall back in fear from God. This mountain from which Jesus preached appears to be a more comforting setting for the multitudes who had gathered to hear the world's greatest preacher. I also like to think that Jesus, being the author of creation, strategically chose that specific location for his pulpit because he delighted in the perfect sanctuary that his creation offered this multitude. This multitude most likely enjoyed seats of green, lush grass, a canopy of clear blue sky above them, and a crisp, cool breeze as they soaked in the sermon from the preacher of preachers. Tourists today travel all across the world to visit some of the most elegant and ornate cathedrals known to man. But none compare to the open-air cathedral that Jesus preached this sermon from here in Matthew chapter 5. Isn't it interesting how we're often guilty of judging a book by its cover? We'll visit or we'll pass by some really beautiful cathedrals that have historically been significant in this country or even in just across the world. But the truth is that the greatest cathedrals that this world has ever seen are nothing without the uncompromising truth of God's word being preached. It doesn't matter how ornate the building is, how decorative, how expensive they were to construct. Without the word of God being taught from behind the pulpits of these cathedrals, they are whited sepulchers full of dead men's bones. Jesus condemned the Pharisees of this in Matthew 23 and 27 and says, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like unto whited sepulchers, which indeed appear beautiful outward, but are within full of dead men's bones and of all uncleanness. The building is not what makes the church. It doesn't matter what the building looks like on the outside. All that matters is what is being preached on the inside. I saw a quote a while back which read, Do not go where it is all fine music, Grand talk and beautiful architecture. Go where the gospel is preached and go often. There are a lot of churches today that pass the eye test, but not many pass the gospel test. We're certainly, and this is not an insult to anyone or anything, we're certainly not passing any eye tests right now here at Latham Bible Baptist Church with the construction that we're doing. Hopefully we will shortly, 
but we can be sure to pass the most important test by preaching only the uncompromising truth of God's word. Jesus taught from a place where many people wouldn't have given a second thought to. We were away on vacation the past two weeks, and we visited uh, two different churches. We were in two different states. And I did a bit of research ahead of time trying to figure out, you know, okay, I know where we're going to be. Let me find a good local church that we can attend. And trying to figure out where we were going to go was a little bit tricky, but one of the, uh, checking different websites and was able to find out, you know, good solid churches that we could go to. One of the first things I noticed that on each of the websites of the churches that we eventually attended, they each had a picture of their building on the website. They even included a picture of the sanctuary, the inside of what it looked like. I can tell you that neither of the two churches we attended showed a picture of a mountainside with an open-air sanctuary. None of them said, here, this is where we gather. This is what our sanctuary looks like, and it was a picture of a, a hill outside of a mountain. None of them had that kind of a picture. Now, I'm certainly not going to base my decision as to where I'm going to go to church on what the building looks like. But it probably would have factored in a little bit if the church was meeting on a mountainside as opposed to inside of a building. Although that does sound pretty cool. You know, maybe I would have gone to that church. Who knows? But the point I'm trying to make is that this was unorthodox for Jesus' day. Typically, such teaching of religious nature would have been done in the temple or would have been done in any of the many synagogues that were around that day. And here you have Jesus showing us that the building is only as good as what is being taught within its walls. And the platform from which the gospel is to be preached is not limited to the walls of a church building, but should be preached from wherever, wherever, whenever, and wherever people can hear. I want you to notice third, the posture of the preacher. The posture of the preacher. Look at what it says in verse number one again. It says, And seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain, and when he was set, his disciples came unto him. There were occasions where it was necessary that Christ stand to preach, but here on this occasion, we actually see him sit down. Now, this was not because he was tired, not even because he knew that this was a really long sermon that he was about to preach, which could you imagine if I began my message tonight sitting down because I knew that it was going to be extra long? That probably wouldn't be the most exciting thing for you guys to, th to see. But this isn't why Jesus sat down. As much as there were plenty of occasions where Jesus remained standing, where he pleaded with sinners to believe on him, probably even using every ounce of his body trying to beseech men to come to him and to be saved, this was different. This sermon of Christ was a little different, one that taught the blessings of the kingdom. This sermon was preached by Christ more like the king of kings seated upon his throne as he explained the differences between those who truly believed on him and those who just professed to believe on him. It was not out of the ordinary, even in oriental customs of the day, for the teacher to sit and the students to stand. And here on this occasion, we see Jesus the teacher from a seated position. This is the Sermon on the Mount. He is the greatest preacher. But like any great preacher, Jesus knew that not every sermon needs to be delivered the same way. Sometimes it's necessary to raise your voice. Sometimes it's necessary to move around, to use the word of God as a metaphorical hammer or two by four and hit people in the back of their heads. And sometimes it's necessary to speak in calmer tones and to get the attention of the people in different ways. Jesus wasn't shy about calling out people for who they truly were. I already shared to you what he's called the, the scribes and Pharisees, outright calling them hypocrites. 
But he was dynamic enough to know the difference. Tactics can also be incredibly effective. On this occasion, he sat down and he would teach the multitude in a way that is not often seen in churches today. Effective preaching is not limited to just one style. Effective preaching has nothing to do with how loud a preacher is, how excited he is, how much he's moving around, or how many illustrations he's using, or the object lessons that he has. Effective preaching has everything to do with the content of what is preached. Some of the great preachers of old were not dynamic at all. Some of you have probably heard of Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards preached the great sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And he was notorious for being incredibly monotone and never looking up from his notes. Can you imagine that? And all just monotone, no voice inflection, no articulation, just complete monotone, never making eye contact, never looking at anyone, just facing the notes and just reading. He would preach that way for several hours at a time. And the people sat in pews that had no cushions in a sanctuary that had no air conditioning. And yet they had no trouble following along the entirety of the sermon. When we hit the hour mark, I start getting death glares from people. Maybe I should stop looking up for my notes as well. Jesus preached sitting down. I want you to notice fourth, the style of his delivery. Look at what we see in verse number two. So verse number one says, And seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain, and when he was set, his disciples came unto him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying. Now this is going to seem incredibly obvious, but Jesus taught by opening his mouth. Now you're thinking, well, how else can a person teach, right? I point this out because there are, and there were, rather, many times where Jesus taught without opening his mouth. There were occasions where Jesus taught with a miracle. There were occasions where Jesus taught with a, a gesture of love. Unfortunately, some people have adopted this nonverbal ministry too much to the point where they never open their mouth. They convince themselves that they're just as effective, or in some ways even more effective, never opening their mouths at all. There were many occasions where Jesus ministered to people nonverbally, but come on, let's be serious about this. We're not going to be truly effective witnesses for Christ without ever opening our mouths and sharing the gospel. Much of our nonverbal actions and much of our nonverbal communication can open the door for the gospel to be shared. But it still needs to be presented verbally. And if we're saved, shouldn't we want to tell others verbally about the love that we have for the Savior who died on the cross and paid for our sins? What I find is that those who are truly passionate about Christ, they can't stop talking about him. Their mouths never close. People get tired of having to run into these people because, oh, that's the guy who's going to talk about Jesus. In one of the churches that we went to, they, they brought up an individual who was being considered for a, a position in the church, which is an inter interesting position. I'll get into it another time. But the pastor was introducing the man, and he introduced the man this way, and I thought it was very clever. He said... We met this, he said, he, they apparently had a long history. He said, I, I met so-and-so about 30 years ago. And he said, back in those days, he was a runner. Every time he'd see me, he'd run. 
A lot of people run the moment you'd open your mouth and start talking about Jesus. But you know what? Irritate those people as much as possible. Never stop opening your mouth. Better to irritate someone and be concerned about their eternal salvation than to keep your mouth closed and let them go without hearing the truth into eternal condemnation. Some people never close their mouths. They've truly embraced the words of Paul where he said in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Too many Christians are shamefully hiding behind their nonverbal service, telling themselves that they are effectively witnessing when God has clearly called all of us to open our mouths and to tell others about him. Are there occasions when the Lord tells us to close our mouths and use nonverbal communication? Absolutely. But the nonverbal communication was always intended to open the door for verbal communication. Jesus opened his mouth, the Bible says, and taught them one of the greatest sermons the world has ever heard. May we pray for God to open our hearts as his word is open to us so that our mouths would be opened to show forth the praises that we have for our Redeemer. Would you bow with me in prayer here this evening? Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for the opportunity that we've had tonight to get to know the preacher. Lord, the one who delivered this incredible Sermon on the Mount, your only begotten Son. I pray, Lord, that we've gained a little bit greater insight into who he is, Lord, and his heart for lost souls. I pray, Lord, that we would share the same heart and mind of Christ, where we're always making time for others, where we're desiring, Lord, for people to hear the gospel. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to have open mouths, Lord, that are speaking your truth in love, admonishing in love, forbearing in love, Lord, and giving the gospel in love. Lord, use us as your instruments, and may we be a blessing to the people around us. Thank you, Lord, for the work that you're doing on us and for how long-suffering you are with us as you hold us close to you every single day. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.